This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, This is an important episode for us because we are on the cusp of summer, and we're also on the cusp of what is now an undeniably uh, inflationary moment in American society and in world society. Uh, We've become accustomed over the last two decades to uh, a period of relatively low inflation and uh, stable prices, and that has all changed in the last few months, as anyone who has purchased uh, gasoline for their automobile knows. And uh, we're joined today uh, by a historian, uh, policy commentator, public intellectual, and friend uh, who has done more thinking about inflation in historical and contemporary terms than anyone else I know. He was thinking about inflation when people thought inflation was a passe subject and has written uh, important work uh, as a scholar and public intellectual on the topic. Uh, That is, as many of you know, Adam Tews. Uh, Adam is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. Uh, He is, as I said, a leading economic historian, uh, not just in the United States, but uh, on at least three or four continents. And he's the author of numerous prize-winning books that I routinely impose upon my students, uh, Statistics and the German State, 1900 to 1945, Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, The Deluge, The Great War and the Remaking of the Global Order, Uh, The two most recent books that would be most relevant for today's discussion, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and his uh, most recent book from 2021, uh, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Adam's writings from the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, his uh, quite famous chart books uh, that are linked and uh, commented on on Twitter all the time. Uh, Adam, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure to be here. Before we get into our discussion with Adam, of course, we have uh, our uh, poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. And and this was a tough task, Zachary, writing a poem on inflation. Uh, Certainly. This might have, of the 203 episodes, this might have been the most difficult uh, poem for you. Yes. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. Today, you're at the gas station, Mirthless. Today, you're at the gas station, Mirthless. Isn't it all premium, unleaded? In your hands, the paper becomes worthless. You are on the moon, smiling, earthless. You awake another dream you have dreaded. Today you're at the gas station, mirthless. Fold it in and out. Hurt it, it's useless. Rub the green off. Your fingers are leaded. In your hands, the paper becomes worthless. In a supermarket aisle, girthless, starving, you were marching past, bareheaded. Today, you're at the gas station, mirthless. Bend it up and down, tear it, remorseless. Don't stop till it's in pieces and shredded. In your hands, the paper becomes worthless. From here, you seem frozen in time, birthless. Isn't it all premium unleaded? Today, you're at the gas station, mirthless. In your hands, the paper becomes worthless. I I love the mirthless uh, refrain there, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is about how what can seem to us uh, something ordinary, a very basic economic transaction, can can be in the life of an ordinary person deeply important and 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 emotional on almost a grand scale uh, 
And, and what about the mirthlessness of the cost of gasoline? What are you getting at there? Right, I'm mean, getting at the fact that that it can be so so depressing. So no, it, it it can it can impact us emotionally, not just economically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Adam, why are we in this inflationary moment? Why all of a sudden have gasoline prices in Los Angeles, for example, gone from around two or three dollars a gallon to eight dollars a gallon in, in what seems like a matter of days? Why has this happened? Well, I mean, I think, you know, to, to dub it an inflationary situation is already to concede, as it were, that there is a big drama going on here. And another way of looking at it is simply that Oil prices have gone up in the way they do sometimes. They also go down. And when that happens, American oil prices go up and petrol prices go up, gas prices go up. <clears throat> it's nowhere near extreme in the United States as it is in many other parts of the world. Um, but American consumers are hypersensitive on this issue. And um, and so, you know, that's the situation we're in. Um, in that sense, you know, there's no real drama here. And, and to construct this as an inflationary moment of drama is already, as it were, to take a position on where we're at. Basically, sure. you know, US inflation, the last inflation print was 8.6%, which is high relative to what we've experienced in recent decades. It's um, roughly about roughly half of what it was in the, the big phase of inflation in the 1970s. And, you know, talk of hyperinflation and this kind of thing, which you can occasionally see in finance that is absurdly exaggerated. That's, you know, 50% a month. So that's not where we're at. What we're seeing is a spike in a variety of different prices around the world. Um, the World Bank's analysis says, broadly speaking, that everywhere in the world, three different forces are in play. Uh, one is the energy price, the dislocation in global energy markets. Um, another is a more varietal, in a wider variety of cost push supply chain type issues. And then a third is demand side pressure. And Roughly speaking, at the global level, it's one third, one third, one third in terms of the quantitative significance. In the US, the demand side element has a slightly stronger uh, component. In, in Europe, the, believe it or not, the energy price uh, uh, is even more significant because gas prices, that is natural gas prices there, have gone through the roof in a way that Americans could barely imagine. And we're talking about huge escalations in domestic heating hmm. costs. So anyway, that's the, the basic makeup of this. Um, but it, yeah, it translates into these, you know, CPI consumer price index numbers, which are much, much higher than we've been used to in, in a while. And it's been very sudden because as recently as the summer of 2021, you know, the question really was of lowflation of inflation below the, um, the official limit of 2%. And so it's been a, it's been a, a rapid acceleration to levels we haven't seen in a while. And that's really the source, I think, of the, the shock, but you put it in perspective, Really, I think um, there's no reason to over-dramatize this. And, and most forecasts suggest that prices will be coming down again. We may be close to the peak. If we're not at the peak, we're very close to it. And we would expect prices to start coming down again in the latter half of this year and certainly next year. And, and Adam, how is this related to one of the other phenomenon of our time, which is the um, shortage of workers, right? The United States unemployment rate is below 4%, and it used to be conventional wisdom when I took economics courses that uh, 4% was full employment, right? And we're at 3.6%, I think, when I look today. Um, is that related to this too? Is the, is, the, is the labor shortage part of the inflationary pressure as well? It, it, it would be if... Uh, real wages were increasing. I mean, so, you know, we have this measure, which is real wages, which is the nominal wage, dollar dollar wage, in proportion to the price level. And, and wages can be a driver of inflation. But if, as they currently are, they lag behind 
inflation and real wages are falling, then one has to say that wages are adjusting to inflation and not in and of themselves drivers of it. Now, that's a gross statement for the whole country. If you break it down and you've got particularly hot labour markets, um, then one can well imagine, I don't know, in Austin, for sake of argument, or in New York, that the, sh- the shortage of particular types of workers, say, in the service sector will lead to an escalation of prices. But um, but in general right now, uh, not in the US and not in Europe, which are the two hotspots of inflation amongst the advanced economies globally, are we seeing wages as a major driver? Because in both parts of the world, real wages are actually falling. Um, so workers are failing to, to, to catch up with uh, the price increases. Uh, this might be somewhat speculative, but if if the inflationary moment we're in now, uh, if we're going to term it that, uh, is the result of of larger macroeconomic factors at an international level, why do you think here in the United States it's become such a domestic political issue? Uh, it it almost seems as if uh, you can trace the Biden administration's uh, uh, approval rating uh, as a sort of opposite of as inflation increases in, in, in the United States. Yeah, and the Biden administration has actually uh, tried to externalize this, right, and point the finger at Putin and say, it's Putin to Russia, which is driving gas prices up, um, and has failed to get that message across. Um, but I mean, I, you know, it's tempting to say something catty and European, like all American politics is always, always about America. Right? It never really escapes that bubble. <laughs> um, but, um, but that's not quite true, right? Because in the 1970s, it was popular to blame it was popular to blame American uh, inflation on, on OPEC. And they, they tried that this time around, too. And, and it just hasn't it just hasn't worked. I mean, in part, I think, because of the nature of American politics right now, there is a substantial percentage of the American population, which is just looking for reasons to hate on the Biden administration. And along comes inflation. So they hate on the Biden administration for that reason. I mean, the vast majority of the Republicans, are people who are Republican aligned, believe or, or at least when asked by opinion pollsters, profess to believe that America is currently in a recession which is just ludicrous, right? I mean, well, well, sorry, that's rather, I shouldn't put it like that. Let's just say that their perception of the economy diverges quite dramatically from that of any economist. Um, because what they're experiencing is these rising cost of living and, and things are going badly. And so therefore, you know, recession is a bad word about the economy and the Democrats are bad. So that's how that arithmetic appears to work. It's generally true right now that the perceptions of the economy in the US are not meaningfully independent of partisan alignment. So when Republicans rule, the Democrats feel that they're badly off in economic terms. And then literally on the day of the election in the Michigan Consumer Surveys, you can see this, the assessment flips. You know, no, nothing else has happened, but, but your party either won or lost the election. And all of a sudden you feel much worse off economically. So the, the perception here is massively influenced by partisanship. Um, the, other, the other more mechanical kind of social physics element of this is that the triumph of the Biden administration, and I don't think it's wrong to call it that, is to have achieved full employment. But that, of course, benefits the minority of people who are at serious risk of unemployment. Um, you know, even in the worst, like the Great Depression or something like that, 25% of the population are unemployed. That's a tar- I mean, that's an epic historic recession. So that tells you three quarters of people still have their jobs. Um, inflation affects absolutely everyone, employed or not. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why the inflation... Uh, surge is such a problem for the Biden administration that they can they can talk as much as they like about the fact that hardly anyone's unemployed anymore. And most people will shrug and say, well, I wasn't at any risk of being unemployed anyway. So this doesn't do me any good. Um, but what does hurt me is the fact that, yeah, gas costs more or or food costs more or that my 
uh, now my mortgage rate is going to go up, which is going to be, as it were, this is the knock-on effect then. Mm-hmm. Well, why is it, Adam, and I think this is a potential parallel between the United States and Germany, two countries you've studied closely, why is it that there is this um, psychosis that occurs around inflation? Uh, we can think of the United States in the late 1970s and how this, in a sense, hijacked uh, President Carter's uh, mm-hmm. sets of policies. And, and of course, the German example, you've written about it extensively, and you're not the only one, of course. Uh, why is this? Is this a function of these particular democracies, or how do we understand this historically? Well, I think it's difficult to be cool about inflation because it does affect absolutely everything. Um, and it affects something rather fundamental about societies, right, which is, which is money. And um, money is up there with law or language as a sort of general medium through which we organize life, social life. And if you're not anchored on the gold standard, which is something that we gave up in a world historic break in August 1971, one of the, you know, one of, one of the world historic breaks attributable to Richard Nixon, though it's not the only one. Um, at, from that moment onward, all currencies in, in the world are, are disanchored. They're no longer anchored in metallic um, standards. They're no longer anchored on gold. They have no, they have no fixed foundation. And so we live in this kind of world of relativism for the last half century in which there's no real good answer to the question of why is money worth it is worth what it is other than to say, well, it is. And everyone accepts it as whatever it's worth currently. And by that, you mean not that you can go translate it into gold or get it converted to something real, that that kind of fiction or that that reality that underpins the gold standard. But that really what it's worth is what you and everyone else knows it exchanges for at Starbucks or at Walmart or, you know, wherever you go to exchange cash or things. And for that fragile, all pervasive, but and, and to that extent, rooted, socially rooted phenomenon to lose its stability um, is really disconcerting. I mean, imagine if words progressively day by day shifted their meaning, like... You know, today, apple means apple, but tomorrow it's apple now spelt with, you know, just one P. And then the day after, they'll take the L out. And then the day after that, they remove the E. You see what I mean? Like, imagine if the entire structure of communication was destabilized in this incremental way. It would be very, very disconcerting. And we would immediately say, no, stop this slide. You know, this is a slippery slope. Soon we won't be able to communicate with each other at all. My God, like everything would lose its meaning. That would be, and that's essentially what's happening with, Within an inflation, certainly a serious inflation. I mean, the one we're facing right now, to re-emphasize, is not that kind of inflation, but it's bad enough. Um, and and one thing that will follow from that is to continue the language, you know, analogy is in a sense people will stop arguing, right? Because they can't agree on what things are worth. And you know, you've written a book which is full of all these words which don't mean what they used to mean. And so then you know you have to sort of find a way of revalorizing that. And and and. That's another reason not to like inflation. It's not just that it destabilizes values, but it unleashes conflict over what has value and what doesn't. Building on your your insightful analogy about language and money as a kind of language, um, in a sense, uh, in order to maintain the value and integrity of money, especially post Bretton Woods, central banks have played an important role. And this is the role, of course, that the Bundesbank had played a long time and uh, the European Central Bank plays uh, for much of Europe now. And of course, the role the Federal Reserve has played in the United States going back to its founding in the early 20th century and most recently 
and with the veneration of Federal Reserve managers like Alan Greenspan and others, why have these institutions failed recently to manage this uh, moment of inflationary pressure better? Because um, I think they took a calculated risk, to be honest. Um, the priority of, of policy coming out of the COVID shock of 2020 was, first of all, to prevent a meltdown, a financial crisis, which was the top priority in the spring of 2020, and then to provide a capacious and supportive monetary policy backdrop for the efforts of fiscal policy of government spending, welfare, and other measures um, to restart both the American and the European economies and ensure that we didn't suffer a long COVID in the, the labor market. And um, that was always a somewhat risky proposition because it meant basically keeping the taps open for long. Um, and then they got unlucky with a series of supply-side shocks, the, the energy shock and the, the various uh, supply chain bottlenecks that we were talking about a minute ago. And were slow, you might say, to realize just how high this was going to go, but it's, it was very quick, right? So the inflation talk didn't really start in earnest until the summer of 2021. And they made the judgment call that they wanted to keep their foot on the gas for a few more quarters and um, have pivoted really since the well, since December. But I think that's the that's the trade-off. Um, and it, it could, you know, it's certainly true that in recent decades, central banks have not had to worry about inflation. In fact, if they've worried about anything, it's disinflation, falling prices, right. deflation even, when, when prices literally can go negative, we have negative inflation. And as recently as the summer of 2021, it's really hard to credit now in retrospect, but, but both the Fed and the ECB changed their inflation targeting rules so as to allow more accommodative policy. So the Fed went to an average inflation targeting rule, which meant that if inflation goes above a certain goes below a certain level for a period of time the fed is uh, is mandated to go above a, uh, that inflation rate of 2% for a period of time to offset so as to achieve on average 2% inflation and the ecb tinkered with its rules which previously had said inflation below 2% to say inflation of 2% so not to err below but to to literally try and target two both of which were inflation bias so they they were they were pushing it a more expansive direction that's and that at the time was thought to be a perfectly you know rather wonkish but nevertheless quite sensible adjustment and within months we were in a very different reality so that's that's i think the the backstory here um a period in which they just didn't have to worry about inflation very much to the point of actually thinking they needed to change their rules followed by some very severe supply side shocks but to re-emphasize, I mean, you know, most forecasting says we're at peak or very close to peak. And by, you know, this time next year, we would expect inflation to have come down very dramatically, especially since now we're, of course, seeing a quite vigorous response from the Fed. Right. So so your sense then, uh, putting this in a wider historical frame and thinking not just about the the, the, the quick rise in prices, but comparing this to what would be a more historical inflation rate, which would be much higher and seeing this as not at anywhere near that that crisis level. Your advice then is not to overreact now, um, just as we probably should not have overreacted to the deflationary pressures of about a year, year and a half ago. Well, no, I'm even more biased than that. I think we did exactly the right thing in relation to the deflationary pressures of a year and a year and a half ago. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't second guess any of those calls. Um, but um, I certainly think we shouldn't overreact to the pressure now. Um, 
in the US, I think there's more wriggle room because the US labor market is so strong, relatively speaking, that there's a little bit more room um, for action. But um, in Europe in particular, I'm, I'm really quite worried about the recessionary impact of the war. I mean, after all, you know, Europe is, is the neighbor of a major shooting war. And as of this week, it's quite clear that Russia is going to use the gas weapon. And so Europe could be gas rationing by by the second half of the year. And that's not the environment in which you want to be raising interest rates. Right. So um, certainly in Europe, I think there really is a concern. And this isn't even before we get into the Italian sovereign debt and all of the whole Eurozone imbroglio. But, but um, in Europe, I think there really is a risk of, of um, tipping this over. And globally as well, we shouldn't underestimate the deflationary recessionary pressure that comes from China because China's not done with covid and there is a serious issue there serious potential risk of of um if not contraction exactly then a really quite dramatic slowdown in chinese growth not saying that will happen but it's out there as a possibility and if that were to be the case it will feed food to a not just a, a deceleration in inflation but actually falling commodity prices and in certain sectors which are super china sensitive like iron ore we're already seeing that iron ore prices are way off their peaks. Um, so because iron ore goes into steel and steel goes into Chinese construction and Chinese construction is slowed down dramatically because of the real estate bust there. So a balance of pressures here. The US is in a sense the simplest case. Sure, the Fed moves interest rates up. Not really going to be much arguing with that. But I think in, in Europe, it's a, it's a finer judgment. So, so what should they do? What should um, Bundeskanzler Scholz, uh, as the leader of of a country that shares at least as much of a concern about inflation historically as the United States, that's uh, still quite dependent upon Russian gas and oil, as you said, uh, but also committed to uh, reversing Russian aggression in Ukraine and elsewhere? Uh, what what can the historian offer as advice? <laughs> Well, I mean, the temptation is to do things like to actually try and control prices, uh, or as President Biden has been suggesting, like, you know, lower taxes on the commodities that people feel particularly sensitive about. Generally speaking, I think both of those are less than attractive options. Um, notably, the tax reduction for gas, for petrol, I mean, that's that's really totally counterproductive because it encourages the consumption of something that's scarce. That's not what you want to do. The, the reason to be concerned about inflation, I think, is um, the distributive impact on low-income households. And so I think Economics 101 would dictate that you provide income subsidies to low-income households um, to shelter them against all of these price increases. I mean, to put it bluntly, if gas at these kind of prices is a problem for you, it's not because gas is at that price. It's because you're poor. You don't have enough household income or you're stretched, right? The balance between your budget. You just have no surplus, you know, slack. So that's the problem to address, not the not the price. Uh, let the price rip, essentially, because it sends the right signals. It will send the signal to increase energy production in various ways. Doesn't have to be fossil fuel, but and it, you know, as fossil fuel prices go up, it increases the demand also for renewables as substitutes. And it curbs demand. Why not, why not, why not just follow the sort of basic logic of microeconomics. And then if you have, as we absolutely should have, serious concern for those uh, at the bottom of the income pyramid in the United States as in Europe, well, they need to subsidize their incomes. Um, and that's that's the way to, that's the way I think to efficiently handle this. Um, and you can do that through tax credits or you can do that through, through checks. 
Right. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense, right? That those who are feeling the pain um, because they're in low-income situations provide them with a subsidy that, in essence, evens out the price increase so they don't feel that uh, when, they, when they're yeah. purchasing food. And, and you yeah. could even target that at particular commodities, at, at food, for example. Yeah, I mean, the, the downside of it is that it involves a kind of means-testing discriminatory logic, right? Um, that, that basically you have to identify households that are poor, and that's also one of the unattractive features of, say, the food stamps programs. Like, you know, it, it, it's discriminatory. Um, but on the other hand, it's efficient and it's not distorting of signals. Um, and um, and that's, that's a huge benefit. Price controls, which, are, which were hotly discussed a few months ago mm-hmm. um, and have historical um, precedent, after all, in the 1970s. Again, Nixon, sure. um, all the way through the 1970s administrations, it was the Reagan administration which finally decontrolled um, petrol in the U.S., they're potent in the sense that they immediately act on the thing you're worried about, which is inflation, but they are also seriously distorting. And furthermore, they accumulate interest groups around them, right? So once you fix the price, then those who benefit from that obviously have a huge investment in trying to maintain that price that price peg. And you will get distorting um, counteractions by people who, you know, who are forced to sell whatever commodities in short supply at that price, which is by definition less than they could get right. if the market was right. free. And so those lines that, you know, it's famous in the United States in 73 and 79 are, I think, I mean, it's it's broadly speaking, understood not the result really of an absolute shortage of oil in, you know, available to the US. It's just that it was not in anyone's interest to supply it at the controlled prices. And so unsurprisingly, you know, supply was short. If, if, if there'd been a pricing mechanism, then prices would have gone up. People would have been squeezed. You would have had hardship, but you would not have had... Queuing, you know, those are the two right, basic ways right. of allocating scarce resources: queuing or, or prices. So, if you see a queue as economist, as an economist, you ask why wasn't there a price adjustment? Right, right. Now that makes perfect sense. That, that I, I guess the question, though, Adam, and this is the, at the center of your work. Uh, these are political decisions yeah. as well as economic decisions, and it seems the logic of a fiscal subsidy to counteract the inflationary costs for poorer families is politically non-viable in almost every democratic society I can think of now. Right. And in fact, many, many, I think, are are, are blaming uh, some of Biden administration's subsidies for the crisis accurately or not. Well, in, the, in Europe, it has to be said, subsidies of that type are viable and have been used quite extensively. Um, and I don't see why one couldn't make them work in the US by various types of uh, tax credit, which are effectively that that kind of mechanism, right? You set some sort of a threshold and households whose tax bill falls beyond a certain, below a certain level, receive some sort of tax credit system. I don't think one should rule them out as Im- impossible, um, but it's obviously more attractive to offer a, a big benefit to everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's That's undoubtedly an easier political sell. Right. Right. And, and the other challenge, I think, is, as you say, um, figuring out where, where you set these thresholds. So, so who, who should receive the subsidies and who shouldn't, right? I mean, this is always, this is always the, the challenge. And there's also a big relativities issue, which is, um, you know, it's all very well to say, we'll fix this in terms of income, but, but many households with quite considerable incomes whose budgets, however, are tightly stretched because they've got large costs for education or whatever, will feel this pain very acutely. Right, so if you're having to ha- operate three cars in a family and and right. you're driving kids hither and thither, right, this will hurt. 
Um, so you are also making judgment calls of that type, like where exactly do you draw the line um, and whose pain right. counts? Um, obviously, I think at some level we can make a distinction between people whose income is just, it just take the poverty line and just do some kind of multiple of that, for instance. Um, that would certainly work. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, it, it absolutely involves judgment calls. All of these things involve judgment calls, right? If you use price controls, it's a judgment call too. One of the ways of understanding the politics of something, you know, what we now call neoliberalism of the 70s and 80s is precisely to pull back politics from making these kind of judgment calls. Because when, when politics is involved that deeply in the mechanics of the market mechanism, it's... Uh, it's 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 uh, it's it's tough, right? It's tough to avoid responsibility for crises, um, and you lose your wiggle room because interest groups swarm then around those around those commitments. Right, and of course, this it, this is the the posture that the Federal Reserve takes, and that the Bundesbank and the European Central Bank take, which is to say that they're 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 technocrats, right? They claim that they're making judgments based on an objective or somewhat objective reading of the data, but of course, there is enormous political pressure on the actors in these in these settings. It is, but I mean, the the basic move was to hand the inflation problem off to them first of yes. all. I mean, what politics yes. says, well, hey, this is for you. And it's a nasty problem we're giving you, but we will make you unelected. So that's the right. trade-off, right? You've right. got one simple mission, keep this inflation thing by around about 2%, not ask to do anything else. I mean, of course, in the Fed's case, they do have a dual mandate, so they have to balance. But um, undoubtedly, yes. I mean, up to and including, you know, speculation about, you know, really manifestly political things, like should the Fed condition its policy so as to minimize the chance of a Trump election or re-election right. like right. this was openly discussed in 2019 <coughs> amongst liberals associated with the fed sure like sure. um you know could, could could if if i mean and you can see the logic and it's a technocratic logic if you can identify literally through quantified econometric studies that the incumbent in the white house is currently the largest source of uncertainty in the global economy you could do this like you can do econometric studies that show this from his pronouncements and their effect on markets and if that is spreading uncertainty to the economy and that then in turn makes it more difficult to manage the trade-off between unemployment and inflation can it be conforming with the fed's mandate to conduct a policy that makes it more likely that that incumbent is returned right i mean it's right. a it's a it's a completely technocratic argument and you know from the left wing of course one is one is used to this kind of logic, right? It's it's just a matter of common sense to conservative central bankers that obviously they should not conduct policy that enables left wing governments to get reelected easily. But it's rather and more rather less common for for this kind of logic to be spelled out in relation to a, a Republican president. Well, and and I think that's that's the question I really wanted to close on because I think it brings us full circle. Uh, so much of your work, Adam, is is about how um, these moments of economic crisis, and they have a variety of causes. So we shouldn't we shouldn't pigeonhole the analysis here. There's, but your work is about how these economic crises contribute to political extremism of one kind or another, mm -hmm. uh, which in most of your work leads to war and and really bad things, <laughs> mass death in many cases. Uh, genocide, um, and 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 so I think that's the shadow that hangs over these issues. It's not just Trump, right? It's in in a world today where democracies are in a precarious position in many of the centers of historical democratic development. 
Um, to, to what extent are we witnessing, whether it's a real inflationary crisis or just a perceived one, to what extent are we teetering on the edge of another source of extremist um, activism as a consequence of this? And, and what should we do about it? How should we think about these economic decisions in light of that history? Yeah, this is a key question, obviously. And um, it, it also, I think, allows us to introduce one of the key points to make from a historical point of view, which is the, you know, the the way in which the current moment does and does not remind people of the 1970s, because in certain respects, you could say, you know, the parallels are strong, right? There's a, there's a war, as there was in 73. There's an energy price shock, as there was in 73. There's indeed, there's an energy boycott from Russia on gas, as there was in 73. So is this not a similar moment? And um, the fundamental difference, and it goes directly to this issue also of populism, um, is, is how interests, how economic interests are articulated with politics in the two epochs separated by half a century. And, th and the crucial thing about the 1970s story, and this is also tied up with the idea of the wage price spiral, is that in the 70s, the struggle over who won and who lost, who adjusted and who didn't to the inflation was essentially a story of collective action. The, the key actors were trade unions, in other words, and employers' associations on the other side. And so the 70s are a period, the last great period, really, of class struggle in the advanced economies of the West in the broadest sense, including Japan as well. Um, they're the last great period of substantial labor militancy running through to the mid-1980s in, in Europe. And in that moment, the social and economic stress is translated by means of collective organizations, which are not party, party political, but are, of course, aligned with party politics in various ways, um, into an explicit bargaining over who gets what and how you divide up the cake, right? And so it's a, it's a model which was formed in the 20th century, goes back to the turn of the century, early 1900s, last great heyday of what was then called corporatism, in which those sorts of collective interests bargain directly over this problem. And, and what's so fascinating about the current moment is that we do have these analogies in many ways, but what's entirely missing is that intermediary layer of social organization through which interests of the individual and shocks and experience by the individual translated into collective causes and then bargained out collectively uh, in society. It's a little bit like the Putnam bowling alone type thesis, right? That once upon a time, society had this soft tissue of various types of organization. Uh, and those many of those have frayed since the 1970s. And this mm -hmm. is true in the labor market as well. And so that, I think, is part of the story here. The question is not just what does, how do societies react when they are faced with con uh, distributional conflicts, but how do they react when they are faced with distributional conflicts without the articulation of organizations like this to translate them into bigger claims and societal claims in a, in a general way. What, what happens when individuals really in an atomized way confront these kind of pressures, which is our current moment? Now, in some ways it can be empowering. Like, so what we've seen in the American labor market is that the wage of lower paid workers has gone up more, right? And there are incipient signs of a wave of collective organization in the US at Amazon, at Starbucks, famously, you know, being trumpeted everywhere as the, as the new dawn of collective organization. But the reality is that in fact, organized labor is virtually powerless. Uh, in the current moment still. And I think that's what really then opens the door, I think, in my mind, at least, to these other ways in which resentment and, and frustration can be expressed. I mean, in, in the French case is the one that's really most striking, yes. because we've just yes. seen a great breakthrough for Marine Le Pen's latest incarnation in the French parliamentary elections, not the presidential that she lost, but in the parliamentary elections, which will decide whether Macron can actually govern. And if you look at who her voters are, 
They are the people who once would have been literally Communist Party voting trade unionists or Socialist Party voting trade unionists, working class French people. And where they've ended up is in her camp. So this is a much more clear example than the blue collar Trumpian kind of story in the US of this kind of of this kind of logic. Um where the structures of collective action have gone away. And so individuals confronting this crisis, this cost of living, this this crisis in an unmediated way, if you like, find themselves drawn into this new promise of national integration or politics that someone like Le Pen offers. So that that's, I think, one of the great challenges in the current moment, um, which is why proactive government policy would be so welcome if it could, as it were, cushion this. But otherwise, I think one has to ask oneself, how does that how does that answer come? Where does that answer come from? Right. And that's that's actually what was going to be now. Truly, my last question for you, Adam, is what would you say in light of, I think, that that really powerful contextualization you've given of this now? What what would you say to um, the leaders of the G7 who I think are talking about this in precisely these terms? They, they share these concerns. What What should they be doing? What levers should they be thinking about right now? Well, I think they they need to activate um, fiscal policy in the way that we're talking about. I mean, yeah. the, and, and they need to act activate it very intelligently, though, right? Because the because the this could open the door to another round of austerity, which is really not what we need. I mean, it is true that we maybe need to dampen down aggregate demand, for which you need to tighten fiscal policy, but that has to be done with acute sensitivity to the distributional issue. So, ideally, what you would do be doing is skewing, as it were restrictive policies towards the top end of the income distribution while simultaneously raising the nominal income of those at the bottom of the pile. And if that's the maneuver that really needs to be pulled off. And when I say that, for this, I think we can seriously agree there are no political majorities. So this is really difficult to do. But that, that in an ideal world, is what you would be trying to do. You would literally be trying to raise the tax level at the top. And at various points this spring, Democrats in Congress have proposed precisely this kind of measure, right? You have some sort mm-hmm. of excess profit tax operating at the top end to claw back some of the profits. And then you you redistribute some of that to to the bottom to ensure that their nominal incomes are stabilized. And that would be that would be the most effective way of doing this. I mean, de facto, what we're seeing in the US right now is a fiscal contraction. It's quite powerful, actually. It's not discussed anywhere near enough because as the stimulus programs run out, that creates a kind of mini fiscal cliff. Um, and that's actually one of the other reasons why I don't think this inflation is, you know, I think it's going to peak relatively soon and then come down quite quickly because the the fiscal side right now is exercising a very considerable drag on the US economy on top of the tightening from the Fed. Ideally, you would do that tightening in an equitable way. Right, right. So, Zachary, you've listened to this, and I know uh, this is an issue you follow closely and talk quite a bit about with with other um, young emerging individuals in our society. Um, do, do you see uh, mobilization around, around young people for the kinds of uh, fiscal uh, activity, activities that that Adam suggests. I think so. I think that that there is agreement that that something different is needed. I think part of the problem is that um, that that unfortunately uh, the messaging is not there. Right? There isn't the sort of um, political will, um, but there isn't there there isn't the sort of outreach to convince the average American that what is needed um, is a sort of redistributionary. Uh, policy, and I think part of the problem is that 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 we're not willing to think, we're not even willing to think in those terms. 
um, or oh, are we educated? Are we prepared? Are, are, are... I honestly don't think so. I think that especially at at at, at a very like a secondary school level, there is too much of an emphasis on like classic neoliberal economics to really take uh, that kind of policy as seriously as as we should. Right. Right. Well, I think, uh, as always, what Adam has given us here is a tour de force uh, and, and also a tour d'horizon uh, of some of the key issues. And he's, he's helped us to think through the intersection between the fiscal choices we make, the choices we make with how we spend our money, and uh, the context of the pressures that we face and how we should think about the rising prices in our societies, uh, why that's occurring, but most of all, how we can act in ways that help those who are hurt the most uh, rather than simply trying to um, stop stop the, the rising prices in ways that actually might be more harmful than, than a more effective set of fiscal policies here. And I think one of the lessons from scholarship is that actually the, the problem is not usually the inflation per se. It's all of the social and economic consequences that come from it that can be dealt with or cannot be dealt with depending on policy choices. Um, as always, I think, Adam, your work reminds me of how much of a better job we as historians as well as non-historians have to do in uh, writing about economics in ways that are, are useful, as, as your work is. So, so thank you for joining us today, uh, Adam. It's been a pleasure. And Zachary, thank you for your insights and your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.